So we're going to conclude um, Isaiah today. In one sense, we're going to finish the last chapter, chapter 66, if you want to turn in your Bible to Isaiah 66. And, uh, but but as is uh, my custom, when I conclude a book, I always try to finish with an overview of the book, uh, bo- borrowing uh, MacArthur's old title. Many years ago, he did a jet tour of Revelation. And uh, the whole book of Revelation, all 22 chapters in one message, and it was one of his most popular and continues to be one of his most popular um, uh, recordings. But uh, So in the spirit of, of that uh, message, I want to try to do all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah in one message. So we can, we can figure out if we really understand the book or not when you try to do something like that. So uh, you will not want to miss next Sunday as we do the jet tour uh, of Isaiah. And, um, and hopefully that will leave us not just with scattered details, which I think, you know, sometimes we can get lost in the details in a book of this magnitude, but hopefully that will leave us with a really good uh, conclusion that will be memorable and, and helpful we can take into years into the future. So uh, a jet tour of Isaiah next Sunday. But before we do that, let's uh, turn to Isaiah 66. And, and really, uh, chapter 66 is just... Um, a second part of what he began in chapter 64 and chapter 65. We've talked about the new heavens and the new earth and the millennial kingdom and, and whatnot. So, so now, now's your chance to uh, ask all your eschatological questions, your, your questions related to the end times and the sequencing of things and whatnot. So uh, we'll see how all that goes. But um, let's look at Isaiah 66. And uh, as we do that, let me start the PowerPoint so you can follow along here. Okay, and there it is. Look at that. Okay, well, let's jump in here. And uh, so uh, the, the title of the, of the message today is The Kindness and Severity of Our Faithful God, Part 2, just continuing on the same really three themes that we saw last time, God's kindness, his severity and judgment, and his faithfulness to his promises and to his people. Uh, one of the things we see here, I was talking to Pastor Terry about this because he's been in the book of Revelation, and again, not because we planned it like that, but just in God's providence. Uh, I, I don't know how you can read the prophets and read Isaiah and read Revelation, and, and we've seen how Isaiah and Revelation really parallel one another in some sense as they get to the end of the books. But uh, one of the things that we see that is so clear to me is that there is a future for redeemed Israel. Uh, we, we've seen that over and over and over again. We'll see it again today. And uh, the book of Revelation, of course, says the exact same things. So we're not, uh, we're not surprised by that. But uh, it, it's so clear how that comes together. And um, if that's fuzzy in your mind, if, uh, if you're thinking, well, isn't Israel just become part of the church and, and it kind of all merges together? And the answer is sort of. <laughs> Uh, there is a sense in which um, all believers benefit from the spiritual promises that were really promised to Israel originally, and, and we benefit from that. I mean, we, we know the forgiveness that, that Psalm 103 talked about, right? We know that forgiveness in Christ, but that's only because God has grafted us in to some of the spiritual promises that God made to the nation of Israel in what the Bible calls the New Covenant. 
Um, so, so that's important. But as we get to the end of Isaiah, and as we certainly as we see in the book of Revelation, there is a wonderful time in the future where Israel is redeemed, where they become the spotlight uh, of the world, and they are the witness to the nations that God has intended them to be for all of history. And that kingdom where the Messiah himself in the line of David uh, rules and reigns from Jerusalem is, is typically what we call the Millennial Kingdom. How many of you have heard of the Millennial Kingdom before? Have you heard that? Okay, so that's most of you. So that's what Isaiah is going to be talking about here. He doesn't call it the Millennial Kingdom, but as we saw last time, as we parallel these verses with what Revelation tells us, and of course the book of Revelation lays out a little bit more... Uh, specifically both a chronology and some details that are missing in Isaiah, we understand the sequence that God redeems Israel. There is that 1,000-year millennial reign with the Messiah ruling and reigning from Jerusalem over a redeemed Israel. And then following that is the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state. And that, that's, that's the sequence that the book of Revelation uh, puts it in, and that's what we understand as the best understanding of Scripture. So anyway, with all that in mind, uh, let's come back to Isaiah chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? Now, how many of you saw the uh, the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn this last Monday. Did you see it? What'd you think? It's pretty neat, huh? Pretty neat. Um, I want you to imagine, uh, as, as awesome as that is, uh, picturing God, right? Picturing God. Now, now look at this. He says, it's not a star that is my throne. It's not a planet that... God the king sits upon. What is God's throne according to verse 1? The whole heavens. Now, that's even, that's even hard to picture. Imagine God sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. That sounds a little bit like what chapter in Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 6, right? That, remember, remember Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah's vision that starts this whole book. Well, we come back to that same picture here at the end of the book, don't we? And, and, you know, good literature does this. Good movies do this. You have themes at the beginning of the book, right, that you remember, and then at the end of the book, oftentimes those themes tie in or those are, are rehearsed or there's some things that come together about those details at the end. And that's what Isaiah is doing here. He's bringing us back to that vision of God that he saw in chapter 6, high and lifted up, and in this case... It's not a vision of God in the temple. It's a vision of God as he really exists, high and lifted up, seated on the throne of heaven itself. So we, we think about the as awesome as that conjunction of those planets were this last week, and we marveled at that. But imagine seeing God, as it were, seated on the very, the very heavens themselves, that, that God occupies the whole universe, as it were. And that's just, that just makes your head hurt, doesn't it? And, and notice, what does he rest his feet upon? What is his footstool? The earth, right? Earth's pretty big. 
How many have gone around the whole earth before? That's too far, isn't it, right? Um, But this is saying that if we can picture God's greatness and his grandeur, uh, we we know God doesn't have a body, God's spirit, but if we could picture what that would be like, uh, heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. And then he asks this question. Look at the question he asks. So how are you going to build me a house? Now, that's kind of an odd question. What do you think about that? Heaven is, the thro- is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? That's right. Yeah, you remember uh, what Ruth is talking about is uh, way back in the time of uh, David and Solomon, you know, David's idea was to build a temple for God, a permanent residence, as it were, and then Solomon's the one to actually do that. And Solomon has this great moment, um, on the, I think it's on the day that they actually dedicate the, the temple. And, uh, and it's like I, Solomon just has this moment of clarity and goes, he, it's something like, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house. And Solomon has this theological moment of clarity where he says, what on earth are we doing? (laughs) What are we doing? We're building a house for God. The heavens and the highest heaven cannot contain you. And uh, so you're right. There is is, uh, seeming an allusion or a reference to that here. But uh, why would Isaiah... You need to think now. I'm going to make you think. Sorry. Why would Isaiah emphasize uh, at this moment... Heaven is my throne of God, right? Earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? Where is a place that I could rest my head? Why would you do that, Zach? What do you think? Okay. Okay. So Zach said perhaps that God's main goal is not to reside in a building. That's kind of silly because he's too big. Maybe God desires to reside somewhere else. I think you're on to something, Zach. Good, good thinking there. Any other thoughts? What did the temple represent? In the Old Testament, what did the temple represent? Jude, what did it represent? Uh, heaven. What, yeah, you're right. In what sense? Who's in heaven? That's right. So the temple on earth was a reminder that God was with his people, right? Good job. Good, good job. Um, and, and, and so what this is saying is that God's main residence, God's address is not a physical building. And we say, okay, well, heavens and the highest heaven can't contain him. The heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build? Where is a place that I may rest? And look at verse 2. For my hands made all these things, thus they came into being. God says... Uh, <laughs> Can God build a house big enough for him to reside in? That's like a trick question, isn't it? He's saying, I made all these things, right? And yet that's not where he desires to reside. And I think Zach Zach was moving in the right direction. Look at the next verse, the second half of verse 2. But to this one I will look. Meaning, this is where I desire to put my attention And by context, this is the place where I desire to dwell. What does he say? To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. 
Now let's back up a second. Who is receiving this message? Chapter 66, they're hearing it for the first time. Who are the recipients of the second half of the book of Isaiah? Do you remember? This isn't really nice for me to do this on the last day of 2000. We've all had a hard year. We we shouldn't be asking such hard questions, should we? Remember, the first half of Isaiah is written at the time that Isaiah is alive and those four kings, right? Those four kings of Judah were ruling. And so Isaiah is bringing a prophecy about the people and about those kings. The second half of Isaiah, verses four, chapters 40 to 66, is written for the future. It's written for the captivity generation, the generation of Israelites that will be taken off into Babylon when Babylon invades Jerusalem and destroys What do they destroy? The temple. So Isaiah is writing this to the generation of Israelites who, because of their disobedience, find themselves as slaves in Babylon and their temple and their city is destroyed. And so God says what? Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Where then is the house that I may dwell in? He's not talking about that pile of rubble back in Jerusalem. Where does God really desire, desire to dwell? What is he really most interested in? Or we could, we could ask it like this. What captures God's gaze? What does the text say he looks at? Jude, you know? Yes, the person who's humble. Zach, add to that. What else? A humble servant, right? Look at the description. The the humble, the contrite of spirit who trembles at my word. What, What draws the gaze of God is the humble, broken person who takes the word of God seriously. That's what God's looking for. And, and, and again, that, that's where he desires to dwell by context. It's not let's go back and rebuild the temple and all dwell there. It's I am with you. You hear that? They're in Babylon. I will be with you if this characterizes your heart. Now, now let's, let's take a step back again, okay? If you miss everything else in this book, okay, from Chapter 1, we won't go back because we just looked at it last week. The, the indictment of God in the book of Isaiah on his own people is this. They are saying religious things. They are doing religious things. They are professing to know God. But in their heart, they do not love him and they are not following him. That's what the whole book of Isaiah is about. It's about the hypocrisy of people who say God is important, but then they spend the rest of their life pursuing other things. In the case of the Israelites, they're worshiping other deities. They're making compromises with other nations. They're they're doing all their rituals, but in their hearts, they do not love God and they are not trusting him. And so at the very end of the book, what's God saying? He's putting an exclamation point on this, on this most important theme that God draws near to those that are humble and contrite and who tremble at his word. 
That's the real, true believer. And you ready for this? This this God who cannot be contained by the whole universe draws near to you when we exemplify a humble and contrite heart that trembles at his word. That's that's really incredible if you think about it. Okay, so let's get caught up in the notes. Uh, When we talk about God's size, his spatial dimensions, uh, when we talk about the fact that the universe can't contain him, that that the heavens is his throne and the earth is his footstool, and these things make our brain hurt because we can't picture something that big or that that grand in magnitude, uh, theologians said, okay, we need a word for that. We call that God's immensity. That's the word of the day, guys, immensity. Immensity refers to the fact that God is is great and grand in his stature. Uh, Of course, God doesn't have a body, so we're not talking about actual measurements, but this idea that God is so great that the the, the whole universe cannot contain him, uh, that's God's immensity. Okay, how many heard that word before? Heard that word before? Okay, that's his immensity. Okay, and then we got this description about a house and a place to rest. We get caught up there, but what captures God's attention? We saw that. Notice the description. The language here is really different. And as I as I pulled out my Hebrew dictionary to look up these words, expecting that the vast majority of the time I do that, it means humble and contrite and, and trembling. I was struck by some nuances that I want to share with you. In fact, I put them in your notes just so just so you get this. What captures God's attention? He gives us three descriptions here, okay? The first word there is humble. And that, you know, humility, humility means lots of different things, right? A person that's not, you know, overly impressed with themselves and, you know, things like that. A person that's not prideful. But in this context, the word literally means somebody who recognizes their needy condition. It's the opposite of self-sufficiency. It's a person who is confident of their dependence. I'll say that again. It's a person who is confident about their dependence, which is kind of odd, but that's what the word means. You say, well, how do we put that into what he's saying? God draws near. God dwells with the person who is confident of their own need and their own dependence on him. Now, now let me ask you this. What makes for a religious hypocrite? What makes a religious hypocrite? What do you think, Zach? Okay, they say one thing and they act in a completely different fashion. That's our typical definition of hypocrisy. So let's apply that to spiritual things now, right? The person who is a spiritual hypocrite says what? What do they say? Yeah, I love the Lord. I know God, right? What does a spiritual hypocrite do in terms of, you know, the, 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 the religious stuff they're supposed to do? What do they do there? Yeah, they go to church. They pray, grant. Yeah, they might be looking to their good deeds. Sure, yeah. But 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 here's the heart of it. There's all this external stuff. And remember, way back, back in Isaiah chapter 1, this is where the book started. God looks at his, his people and he says, um, my judgment is coming. 
And they say, well, why, God? Why are you judging us? And he says, I just want you to know, I hate your sacrifices. I hate your festivals. I hate your holidays. And we go, that's pretty strong language. When God says he hates the very things that God ordered his people to do as a part of the religious establishment of Israel. Why does God hate them? Why does God hate them, Rob? That's right. In their hearts, they're far from God. Now listen to me. The, the, the most basic way that we posture our heart toward God in a good way is recognizing our utter and total need for Him. We don't get out of the starting block of what it means to really be a follower of God if we are not convinced in our heart that we need His help. And that's what He's saying here. God's saying, I, I'm gonna look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set my attention on the person that says, I need God. I need Him. And uh, you would think that uh, an Assyrian invasion and a Babylonian invasion, there would be this massive revival, you know, like, like Jonah in Nineveh, right? Just massive revival. But that's not what happened. So God says, the person I'm interested in, the person that I'm drawing near to is the person who recognizes his needy condition. Have we learned that this year? Has God helped us to see this year that we need him? You don't have to raise your hand, but has, has God brought a greater awareness of your dependence on him this year because there have been circumstances outside of our control? That, that, that's the point, right? That's what he's looking for. When, when we see our need or confident dependence, right? It's confident dependence. That's when God says, great, that's where I want you to be. That's where I want to dwell. Look at the second part. Contrite of spirit. The word literally means broken and defeated. Now, let's say we're putting together uh, the, the Hood County flag football team of the millennium, right? We, we got Jude Ward there. And actually, actually, the Ward girls are pretty good football players. We, I've seen them on the field. They're pretty good out there. And, and we've got, uh, we've got uh, Zippy. Where, where is he? I don't know where he's, he's hanging out back there. We've got Zip there and, and see uh, Mr. Laminack back there. Maybe we've got Anson and Jayton out there. We're, we're putting together the, the, the football team of the millennia, the, the Hood County football team. And, and what, what name could we come up with? How about Broken and Defeated? Right, put that right on the jersey there. The, the the broken and defeated Hood County kids put fear in the hearts of our enemies, right? Uh, our, our our opponents there, right? See, that doesn't work, does it? We like victory. We like strength. Uh, we 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 are drawn toward things that ensure power and and advantage. And, and that's where the spiritual calculus is so different than what we typically think, right? What draws God's gaze 
is the person that is not only confident of their dependence, but really has come to a place where they're broken and defeated in spirit. See, what does that mean? Does it mean they're losers for Jesus? No, no, no not exactly. By broken and defeated, well, let me ask you. I'll, I'll tell you what it means here in a minute. But what do you think? What do you think broken and defeated in spirit means? Okay, they realize they can't do it on their own. Okay, that, that's moving in the right direction. Yeah, Grant? What's that? No more pride. Okay. Put, put that in a spiritual context. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that we recognize our neediness, right? But we also recognize that, that uh, you know, we've tried everything else. And it doesn't work. This is, this is the person who has come to the end of themselves. And they have lost hope in every other realm of life, including hoping in themselves in some way. And it's in that defeated and broken spirit that they do what the tax collector did that, that day uh, as Jesus tells the parable, right? Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. There are no other options. So, so God is drawn to the person who recognizes their needy condition. They're, they're, they're confident of their dependence. God is drawn near to the person that is broken and defeated in spirit. Um, and again, you, you would think that in Babylon, more Israelites would have landed there, right? Um, interestingly, you know, you know the book of Daniel, right? You remember where Nebuchadnezzar builds the statue on the plains of Dura, probably a statue of himself, right? The statue got him high, right? And, uh, and then the whole community orchestra would play. And what were the people in Babylon supposed to do? Do you remember? They're supposed to bow down and worship the statue, right? As far as we know, there were only three Israelites that refused to do that. You say, what about Daniel? Well, Daniel was in power, and, and so we know Daniel didn't do that either. But, but uh, of, other than Daniel, who, who are the Israelites that we know didn't do that? You'd think, you know, millions of Israelites were carried off into Babylon, right? How many of them stood up and said, we will not obey the order, we will not bow down to the statue, that's idolatry, we can't do that. How many, how many people did that? Three junior hires. So even captivity, even slavery in Babylon, even the slaughter of family and friends, when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem in 586 B.C., did not bring a broken, defeated spirit to most Israelites. Um, we're pretty stubborn, aren't we? Look at the third description. And those who tremble at my word. Um, that word tremble is, is difficult, but, but it's... Um, here's the idea. God has pronounced judgment and it brings soberness. That's what the word is getting at, Right? I am sobered by the weight of God's indicting word. So, for example, what has God been saying chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter in Isaiah? 
You need to repent. You need to turn from your idolatry or I'm bringing disciplinary action with Assyrians and with Babylon, right? God's been saying that over and over and over again. Um, I, I put a cross-reference there in the book of Ezra, chapter 9, verse 4. We won't turn there. But remember, that's the time in, in the time of Ezra, which is after the captivity, right? When, when they come home, that um, the Israelites started intermarrying with foreigners, which was a big no-no because, like Solomon, they, they, they would draw their hearts away from God. And the, the, in Ezra chapter 9, verse 4, the word comes to the people and they hear that the Israelites have been breaking God's law and intermarrying foreign wives. And it says, and the people were trembling at this word. And that's where we get the idea. When God indicts people for their sin, does that bring a seriousness, a reverence, a sobriety? You say, well, what, what does that have to do with, with me? God is, listen very closely, what God is looking for is a person confident of their dependence, defeated in terms of hope in any other place other than God, and someone who will take his word Seriously. This is, this is, um, this is a, a, a dangerous question to ask myself. And, and I'll ask myself and I'll ask you also. How do we respond to God's word? I mean, I, I hope that you're reading your Bible. Pastor Terry's got his Bible reading plans out. Great time to start this year, right? 2021 Bible reading plans. And as you're reading through your Bible, as you hear Pastor Terry preach today, as you're in your home group and your home group leader is in the text, and how do you respond to the Word of God? And um, is it possible that we have become way too casual when God's word is read or when we hear it or when it's preached to us. And instead of bringing a soberness and a seriousness and a a motivation, we kind of yawn. And yeah, I've heard that before. Um, these These are important verses. What captures God's attention? Where does God... Direct his gaze, the person who is humble, the person who is contrite of spirit, and the person who takes his word seriously. I think that's, I think those are, those are some great things just to pray about and work on, aren't they? I think we all have room for growth here. Um, but I love the simplicity of this because it helps us to not be distracted by, by so many other things. Okay, so where does God desire to dwell? Where does he desire to place his attention? on people that are humble and contrite and who tremble at his word. Now, let's contrast that. Remember, the whole book is about identifying hypocrisy and calling people out of religious hypocrisy. Now, if that if that is the true faithful worshiper, right? If that is what God is looking for, someone who is dependent and contrite and humble and trembles at his word, what's the opposite of that? What are the Israelites largely guilty of? What what can you and I be guilty of if we're not careful? Look at verses 3 and following. 
But the one who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. Now, now, you need to think about it, but what is he saying there? What do you think of the description of, of these folks here? What are they doing that's so offensive? Right. They're going through all the outward motions. Yeah, yeah, look at that. The one who kills an ox, like for a sacrifice, right? The one who sacrifices a lamb, like a sacrifice. The one who offers a grain offering, well, that was commanded, right? The one who burns incense. Those are four things that God required of all the Israelites to do as part of their uh, uh, faithfulness to him in, in spiritual service. But God is saying, it's what Ruth just said, right? The person who kills an ox or a lamb for slaughter is like one who kills a man or breaks a dog's neck. And we go, ah. Why would God consider obedience to something he commands a person to do religiously like murder? Like violence against your dog? And the answer is why? Why would God consider those religious services offensive to him, sinful even to him? Why? Yeah, Melissa? That's right. Because they're not humble, they're not contrite, and they're not taking his word seriously. And and that's what we've seen in the book of Isaiah, the people going through religious rituals, but in their hearts they're far from God. And we've seen that again and again and again. And that's the description there. Now, now, what is the bottom line in all of this, right? Their acts of, of worship are viewed with offense, with even sin. What is the bottom line about why? Now, look at the end of verse 3. Who burns incense is like one who blesses an idol. Why? As they have chosen what? Do you see that? That's the problem. And I would say it's a problem today just like it was back then. We are not given license to just do whatever seems right to us, whatever feels right to us. And what the Israelites were doing is they were choosing their own ways. They said, well, this is what seems right to us. We're going to worship Yahweh, but we're going to worship the Assyrian gods just for some insurance. We're going to say we're, we're going to show our allegiance to God, but we're also going to make treaties and alliances with other countries just in case. Now that doesn't sound like somebody who's really totally convinced of their own dependence, totally convinced of their own defeatedness, right? That's not somebody who's taking the word of God seriously. Uh, You you remember in the book of Revelation, uh, as um, Jesus was instructing seven churches in those days, uh, there was a church who who Jesus himself says, You're neither hot nor cold. You're warm. 
tepid. Even the word just sounds so tepid. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know, you got a nice meal on the table, right? It's, it's right off the grill. It's cut, it's sliced, it's laid before you, and it sits until it assumes room temperature, Ugh, right? And God says, you know what? You can pursue God like that. You can let your heart achieve room temperature, spiritually speaking. And as Jesus in the book of Revelation uh, pronounces judgment on that church, he says, because you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's graphic, isn't it? You know, you spit things out of your mouth that are horrid to your taste, right? And that's the exact same thing that Isaiah is saying here, that God is saying. It is it is an abomination to God when we worship him half-heartedly. When we only have one foot into our faith, but we're straddling a line with the world, or when we're going through the motions, but our heart is not engaged. And you know, we're going to go sing familiar songs here next door. We're going we're gonna to read familiar verses. And, and you know, like I know, I struggle with it just like you struggle with it. Your heart can disengage, your mouth can be singing, and your heart is somewhere else. And it's an abomination to God when we do that. They have chosen their own ways. Their soul delights in their own abominations. So God says, verse 4, I will choose their punishments and will bring on them what they dread. Why? Because I called and no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. They did evil in my sight. They chose that in which I did not delight. And that's the description, right? What happens? What happens is judgment. Verse 6, a voice of uproar from a city, a voice from the temple, of the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. Now, here's the kindness and severity of God. The kindness of God that if you're broken and humble and defeated, but you take his word seriously and you turn to him saying, Lord, you're my only hope. Will you help me? God draws near and help, doesn't he? But if our hearts are far away, but we come to church and we give to the church and we sing and we do that, we do our Bible reading and all that, but our heart is somewhere else. We're living for the world. We're living for other things. We're distracted. We're putting our securities in other areas ultimately. God says judgment is coming. They will be put to shame, verse 5 says. And notice, and we need to really think about this, because as life gets harder, and uh, would, you, would you say, just look up for a second, would you say as a church we've, we've had to ask and try to answer some really difficult questions this year? How far do you obey the government? How far does that provision extend, right? I mean, is there a, we obey the government until this point, and then when it's utterly ridiculous to us, then we don't, right? 
what does loving neighbor mean? How do we use our freedoms? How do we deal with other Christians who have different conclusions about masks and restrictions and politics? Yeah, right? We, we have a lot of hard questions. A lot of hard questions. And one of the things we should expect is that as life gets harder and as being faithful to God gets more difficult, there should be, we should expect a growing animosity towards those of us that are trying to take the word of God seriously. We see that here. Look at, look at verse five. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Now that goes back to verse two, right? Those who tremble at his word are the faithful. Those are the true believers. So God says, hear the word of the Lord, those of you who tremble at his word, meaning the faithful remnant, the faithful believers. Your brothers, meaning other Israelites that are not faithful, who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy but they will be put to shame. That's a little bit confusing, but let me help you with that. What God is saying is people, Christians, believers that are faithful, that are taking God seriously, are going to be excluded more and more by the establishment Christianity, the establishment religiosity. And in that exclusion, those hypocritical people are thinking, We're going to see the glory of God. We're we're doing this for God's glory. That's really shocking if you think about that. If we apply the same thought to the church, what that means is the church at large will get to a place in time where they view true believers as absolutely ridiculous. And they will hate them. And they will exclude them. And as they hate them and exclude them, they will genuinely believe they are glorifying God in the process. That's what Isaiah is saying. Maybe those days are far away. Maybe they're closer. Who knows? But that's the attitude of the hypocritical spiritual religious people. Have you ever, have you ever been talking to somebody that says they're a Christian, right? And you're trying to have a Christian conversation with them. And they look at you like, aren't you taking your faith just a little bit too seriously? You ever have one of those conversations? Like, 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 calm down. Like, don't, don't, don't take your Bible so literally, you know? You ever had one of those conversations? That's what's going on here. And the people that are saying that, thinking that they're Christians and calling out what they perceive as a radicalism on the part of the true faithful, they think they're doing the right thing. Anyway, we got to move on. But that's the contrast here with heartless worshipers, right? Now look at this. Look at verse 7. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? We say, how did we go from denouncing hypocritical worshipers to the labor and delivery ward? What is this all about here? Well, Isaiah has changed subjects again on us. And what he's describing is 
this remnant, right? This faithful remnant, people that are being true to God, even though most of the nation is falling into hypocrisy and they're worshiping other deities, they are going through difficulty after difficulty. Of course, Isaiah writes this to the audience that is in Babylon at the time. And here's the thing. Isaiah is comparing the difficulties that the true faithful Israelites are going through. He's comparing that to a woman's labor. That's what he's doing. Captivity, judgment, uh, destruction, death of countrymen, right? Those are, those are all the difficulties that Isaiah has describing. But what he's going to say to the remnant, to the faithful remnant now, he's going to say that labor and delivery, uh, that, that labor is not in vain. Right, God's discipline and, and all that's happening is not in vain because at the end of all of that difficult labor, what comes out at the end? A brand new newborn. And so Isaiah is comparing that to the faithful Israelites that have gone through difficulty after difficulty and he's promising them there's a good thing that's going to come in the end. You say, what's that good thing? Well, look back at verse 8. As soon as Zion travailed... She also brought forth her sons. Verse 9, shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I, or shall I, uh, who gives delivery, shut out the womb, says your God? Isaiah, uh, God is promising the faithful Israelites, I'm not going to take you through all this difficulty and not deliver you in the end. And so he's promising them that this hope is coming. In fact, he describes the hope in verse 10. Look at this. Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. And then he goes on keeping that image of a woman in labor and and delivering, right, is the image, and and maybe you've seen this, maybe you moms remember this or or maybe you grandparents have seen this recently, where that, that new little baby is caressed against mom uh, nursing and just content as it can be without a care in the world. You, you know that picture? Have you seen that picture before? And Isaiah says to the faithful remnant, that day is coming for you. There's coming a day when you will finally be home. And listen to the description here. He describes it as a time of joy. Verse 10, be joy, joyful with Jerusalem, rejoice for her a time of satisfaction. He compares it to a, um, a baby nursing uh, and, and with his mother and just content and delighted and, and satisfied the way a baby... I remember, um, and Lisa, you probably remember which one of our kids was like this, but when they were done nursing and they would just kind of, you know, they would just kind of lay back and, and just, I'm done, right? And the life is good and, and, you know, nuclear war could be happening next door and that baby isn't aware of anything because life is good because uh, full stomach and right you remember that and and, and that that's that's what he's saying here Th- there's a day coming when all our cares all our challenges all our difficulties are gone and there's satisfaction the way a, a newborn baby is satisfied having had a, a full belly of of nursing Notice verse 12, peace. For thus says the Lord, behold, I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing 
stream. This is the peace on earth. You know, we, we, we sing about that at Christmas time, right? You know, peace on earth, and, and we forget that peace on earth is the conclusion of peace with God as he finally puts everything back in order. He says, I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed, you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. We see the comfort there again with that mothering imagery that we've, that he started back in verse 7. Then you will see this and your heart will be glad and your bones will flourish like new grass and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants. So again, here is that description when God restores all things and he brings all things back into order and he rights every wrong and this is a description of what coming home will finally be like. And maybe you had this this last week. I know COVID's kind of been weird and a lot of people like to go home for Christmas or go back to see their parents or go back to their town where they have relatives. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but there's a bit of nostalgia, at least if home was a happy place for you. There's a bit of nostalgia about going home, going back to that place where you grew up and being with family and being with friends. And I recognize this is not everybody's experience on Christmas. You know, maybe... Maybe you don't have those blessings. Uh, but if you've ever experienced something of this going home, being with family, like old times, and there's, there, there's a warmth in your heart that happens that's really hard to explain. We, we walked into uh, my in-law's house, Rich and Carla's house, on, on Friday and Christmas Day, and, and uh, one of the first things I noticed was what we call the brown tape. It's this old uh, cassette tape. Now, kids, you'll need to ask your parents what a cassette is because, you know, You'll have to Google that and watch a YouTube video on it. But this old cassette tape of familiar Christmas music. And when I was first getting to know the Boyds and spending Christmas with them, that, that brown tape of famous Christmas songs was always playing in the background. And, and you walk into the house and it's like, this is Christmas because the brown tape is playing. And you have traditions like that too in your home, don't you? you? You have things that you make or decorations that you put up or traditions that you hold. And it brings a warmth and familiarity. And what, what Isaiah is saying is there's coming a day when we all experience something like that, but in an infinitely greater way. Not because I have a moment of Christmas nostalgia but because every suffering, every difficulty, every disease, every family conflict, every financial woe, all of that is, is, is righted and, and, and put away. And we enjoy something of that. And, and that's why if, if this last week was not a fun time for you, was not a happy time, or maybe it was, maybe it was the opposite, maybe it was a, actually a sorrowful or difficult time as it is for many of us. That's why this brings hope. Because there's coming a day when all of those wrongs will be put away forever and we'll enjoy being finally home with the Lord. Look at verses 15 and following. For, but notice the contrast here. But behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury. We just did a jump cut here, right? We, we, had, we had chestnuts roasting by the open fire, right? And we're finally home and everything's great. And now we switch the scene 
To what? To those who are self-sufficient. To those who are hypocritical. To those who have not taken the word of God seriously. To those who are depending on themselves. And we see judgment upon the wicked. Notice the severity of it. Listen, the word pictures here. God comes in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. God will often do this. You need to get this. God's judgment is so horrible, words fail, even the biblical writers, to try to describe it. The closest the Bible comes to describing the actual judgment of God in the day of his wrath is by envisioning the worst storm you could possibly imagine. I mean, this is like Hurricane Katrina. This is the Asian tsunami. This is the California fires out of control. Thousands of acres burned and gone, right? And that's what Isaiah is doing here. He's using this language of, of fires, of whirlwinds, of furies, of tornadoes, of earthquakes. That's God coming in his anger and in his judgment. And you know how you feel, right? When there's a tornado, some of you have had this description. When there's a tornado bearing down on Hood County, or maybe you have relatives that are on the Gulf Coast when a hurricane is hit, or maybe you have friends, as I do, in California. We had some dear friends of ours that lost their home a couple of years ago in one of the fires. And you talk about feeling out of control, feeling like you can't do You are at the mercy of this power that is so much greater than you. And that's what God's judgment will be like. So it's severe in its nature. Look at this. The Lord will execute judgment with fire and by his sword on all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will be many. Notice the number there mentioned. How many people come under the wrath and judgment of God? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Enter by the narrow gate for the the way is wide and the gate see the, the the way is broad and the gate is wide that leads to destruction and there are many who find it but the way is small and the gate is narrow <clears throat> that leads to life and very few find it And we see that same language being used here. There are many, there are many that come under God's judgment. And that just, that's one of those verses that if you really digest what it's saying, ought to reorient our priorities, right? In terms of what we're trying to do and who we're trying to talk to. Notice their crimes, verse 17. Those who sanctify and purify themselves go to the gardens, following one in the center who eats swine's flesh, detestable things and mice, will come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. Those are more descriptions of their hypocrisy there. Notice it's, it's not murder. It's not mass killing or mass crimes. It's garden variety hypocrisy that brings this judgment. And notice the longevity. Look at the very end of the chapter. You guys know these verses. 
How long does this judgment go on? Verse 24, their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. This is a judgment that goes on forever. But notice the happy ending that we have here. Verse 18, for I know their works and their thoughts. The time has come to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and I will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, uh, Meshech, Tubal, and Javan to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory and they will declare my glory among the nations. You got to get this picture near. There's a regathering of the land, right? There's all these people coming to Jerusalem. We've seen this before in the book of Isaiah, haven't we? As God redeems Israel and as he restores it and as the the servant, the Messiah, comes to rule himself, nations flock to Jerusalem to hear and see of this great wonder. And now redeemed Israel's testimony, they go out, right? Redeemed Israel now goes out into the nations and they tell of the glory of God. This is, this is the evangelistic campaign that happens during this wonderful millennial reign. And, and the, the, the list of nations that are mentioned there, Tarshish and Put and Lud, those are all Gentile nations that represent different continents and different countries. So the point is, when Israel is redeemed, they will go out and be a witness to the Gentile nations. And what else are they going to do? Look at verses 20 and 21. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters and mules and camels to my holy mount. Picture this, guys. God redeems his people. This is what the whole Bible has been anticipating. When God redeems his people and all of a sudden these redeemed Israelites from all these countries, all different parts of the globe, descend and regather into uh, Jerusalem. You know, sometimes we think when back in the 40s when Israel reestablished statehood, that that was all exciting, right? And that's biblically prophetic, and, and in some sense it is. But remember, the regathering of Jews to Jerusalem is only significant from a prophetic standpoint when it's redeemed Israel. Okay, you see that? This is redeemed Israel regathering in the land here. And there are people coming from different countries and different parts of the globe back to Jerusalem to to worship in this great millennial kingdom. And notice, we know this uh, from the book of Revelation as well, that there will be priests and Levites. There will be a rebuilding of the temple. And there will be the reestablishment of the temple sacrifices during the millennial kingdom. You say, well, those are the shadows. Jesus has come. Why do we need that? We, we don't know why those sacrifices are reestablished during the millennial kingdom, perhaps uh, because they continue to picture the person and work of Jesus uh, in that way. So they're, they're not needed uh, because Jesus wasn't sufficient. They're, I think they're used here because it reminds us uh, of um, that great sacrifice that Jesus himself offered. And finally, they will endure. Look at this. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. And all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. I mean, can you imagine this? You've got people of every tribe and tongue and nation descending on Jerusalem to see the Messiah rule, to see a redeemed people, 
to see God's faithfulness. All of the covenant promises are now completed. And we have this wonderful vision of hope in the future for God's people, the Israelites. And yet, what do they witness? They witness the the sobering end of Isaiah. It started on a sobering note, and Isaiah concludes his book on a sobering note. Even as we have this vision of the millennial restoration of Israel, those who have transgressed against the Lord, their worm will not die, their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. So redeemed Israel witnesses all of those who ultimately rejected God's word and God's counsel. Period, end of quote, the end. And so I think Paul got it right in Romans. Isaiah is about the kindness and the severity of our faithful God, right? We've seen his kindness extended over and over and over again, ultimately in mercy shown to his people and to all the nations. We've seen his severity, right? It ends in judgment. It ends in a warning of, of don't be a hypocrite. Don't be lukewarm in your faith. And yet we've seen God's faithfulness. God keeps his word. He always keeps his word. And Isaiah wants, wants the, the echo of God's faithfulness to resonate in our heads long after we close the book and walk away. Okay? So put a comma in your notes, not a period, and we're going to come back next week and we're going to do the jet tour through Isaiah. And uh, you will not want to miss this. Okay? Mach 2 with my hair on fire. It'll be fun. So let's pray. Father, thank you again for the reminder of your kindness, your severity, and your faithfulness. Uh, we, we look forward to the day when all Israel is restored and redeemed and all the nations gather to see this great work that you've done, your great faithfulness to your people, even as those of us that aren't Israelites are blessed through that same gospel as we share in some of those spiritual benefits. Uh, Lord, at the same time, might we be warned might our country be warned, might our church be warned that lukewarmness towards you, that a hypocritical approach to Christianity is a fatal approach to our faith. And, and might we, as we go into this new year, reset and recheck and recalibrate as needed that, that we would be all in in our faith. We want Jesus to have first place in everything. So examine our hearts, lead us to repentance, and would you help us to truly follow you with a whole heart that is humble and contrite and takes your word with utter seriousness. Thank you for Mr. Isaiah and for his reminders to us. What a great study this has been. We're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.